Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Um, I was I shared in the journal prompt, if you guys don't know, on my uh, Katie Morton YouTube channel, I have a biweekly. So on Tuesdays and on Fridays, I offer up a journal prompt. And my prompt this week was about how yesterday just was not the best day. Sometimes we got bad days, you know, and part of it was because I didn't sleep very well. And part of it was because Sean and I are trying to buy a home in Austin, Texas, and we keep getting outbid. And but we woke up yesterday and our realtor was like, we got to get the offer and they upped the deadline. Well, it was like it felt very chaotic from like the get. So <clears throat> needless to say, yesterday was not the best day, but I can do things to make today, for instance, much better. And one of the things that I've been doing is when I get up, I tell myself it's going to be a great day. And then I have to make myself, I like force, which sometimes is more difficult than other days to come up with the reasons why it's going to be great. And today was going to be a great day because the weather was supposed to be beautiful because I got to record the podcast and um, I, you know, didn't have anything on my schedule that was like timely. Cause sometimes I don't know if anybody else's schedules like this, but some days I have like back to back calls or zoom meetings, like pretty much all day. Like the only, I have like 30 minutes to try to like eat lunch. But other days I have like nothing. And today was one of those days. And I was like, I'm going to get to do yoga. You know, anyway, I came up with my reasons, tried to turn this bad attitude around. Um, and today has been good so far. So how are you doing? Just wanting to check in. And if you're having a shit day, know that tomorrow doesn't have to be that way. And a day is just a day. It's okay. We all have those bad days. Okay, enough about me, enough about what I'm dealing with. <clears throat> you didn't come here for that. You came here for me to answer your questions. And I have 10 of them this week. And if, oh, before I forget, because Sean and I are um, working with a new editor for my podcast. It's my good friend, Jules. She does the song at the beginning of this podcast. Anyway, she's going to try to edit it. She's learning. And so I'm moving up my film date. I usually record this on a Tuesday and it goes on a Thursday, but now I'm gonna have to record them on Monday so that we give Jules enough time to do her edits and all of that since, you know, she's still learning. And so I will be, I've scheduled the post because otherwise you guys know I forget, but I scheduled the times that I ask you for your questions. So if any of you don't know, I ask for the questions on the podcast channel under the community tab. And it used to be Mondays at 6 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, but now it's Sundays at 6 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, just so I will have, you have time to get them in and I have time to pick them and then record them. So giving you a heads up, it will be Sundays from now on. If anybody's asking, you see it in comments somewhere, just please let them know. Okay, without further ado, I think that's all the housekeeping I need to do. Let's get into this first question. And this question says, hi, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, as a therapist, would you ever bring up or mention a client's weight gain or loss, a client who is not in treatment for an eating disorder? Um, I'm from Ireland and we were placed in strict lockdown again in mid-December. And I haven't seen my therapist since then as we've been moved to telephone sessions. Oh, just telephone, not even like, you know, the telehealth as we call it, like the Skype type thing. I am overweight and have always been, but I've lost a significant amount of weight since I last saw my therapist. I binge eat and have not lost this weight healthfully. I have always wanted to bring up my issues with eating with my therapist, but was never able to. Part of me is hoping she'll bring up my weight loss as I feel that I will open up the conversation for my issues with food. However, I'm also equally worried that she'll bring it up because I think it, um, that she'll bring it up because I think it will be triggering. Also very possible. <clears throat> Excuse me. As a therapist, do you think you would bring up the topic of weight with a client who is not in therapy for an eating disorder 
but has lost a significant amount of weight in four months since you last saw them. I just want to prepare myself for when I see her again, which may not be for another month. Now, this got a lot of thumbs ups and a lot of chatter. And the truth about this is, yes, I always bring it up. Um, And the reason for that is because not everyone who comes to see me for, let's say, anxiety ends up only having anxiety. A lot of people have issues with food and just don't know how to talk about it or there's lots of shame or embarrassment associated with it, especially if we find ourselves engaged in an eating disorder food or eating disorder behaviors, I'm sorry. Like for instance, I had a patient years ago who never told me that she binged and purged until <clears throat> I forget what had happened. I think I I think I I was like pushing her to go to the dentist because she hadn't been to the dentist in a really long time. And she was having some other medical issues. And I was, you know, making sure she saw her doctor and like encouraging her to take care of her health. And when she went to the dentist, she was confronted and they called me because she allowed them to. It was this whole thing. And then come to find out she'd been, you know, struggling with this since she was like 12 years old. And she was like 20, maybe 26 at the time, 25. And so anyway... I never assume that the main reason that my patient has seen me is the only reason. And I, I think any therapist out there would agree that we don't we don't allow ourselves to put like blinders on and, and pigeonhole our patients into just one issue because as we know, things don't happen in a vacuum and we can be struggling with anxiety, depression, and you know, self-injury or eating disorders or addiction. And those things I find the the what I call unhealthy coping skills, like the anything involving addiction, self-injury, eating disorder behavior, um, even compulsive shopping or compulsive lying. I find that those types of issues are rarely the thing that someone reaches out and asks for directly. Sometimes it happens. And I had a few patients over the years just tell me straight up. I mean, I also specialize in eating disorder, so I'm sure I get more of that than others. But it's very common for someone to reach out for one thing and be struggling with something else. And I think, you know, as a therapist, I've kind of come to expect that a little bit. So <clears throat> that's why I would always bring it up and mention it. But another important component to this is that weight gain or loss can be indicative of a lot of other things, meaning there could be something wrong with your thyroid. Um, it could be an adverse effect to, due to medication, or I could even be worried that because you're stuck at home, you know, you're having a tough time feeding yourself, keeping up with things, taking care of yourself. And so all of that would mean that I would bring it up. And so my, I guess, I don't know your therapist, obviously, but I would bet that they are going to ask you about it because in four months, it, it sounds like it must be kind of a shocking weight change. They're going to say something because first of all, we're human. And second of all, we need to know what's causing it. And I would really, really encourage you before, because you say it may not be for another month, let's use this time right now to prepare our conversation with our therapist and telling them about our eating disorder behavior. Because it'll only help. And the saying it the first time is always the hardest. But once we've like kind of ripped that band-aid off, I find it to be much easier to to continue the conversation and actually get the work that we're needing to get done in order to prevent us from continuing to use the eating disorder. Does that make sense? And so in this time, I would encourage you to journal a few of the main points that you need to get across. Meaning when you talk to your therapist, you don't have to, we don't need to tell her every single thing all about it. Although you can, I mean, some people are more of the verbal diarrhea type of people in therapy, like myself. Um, But 
for those of us who are talking about something that's really uncomfortable, it's okay to just break it down into, you know, three to five bullet points of what we need them to know. I've talked about this in regards to telling a loved one about our mental illness, but I think it also applies here. And some of the things that I would encourage you to to put on those bullet points are, number one, how long this has been going on. Number two, that it has been difficult to speak up about because you you feel like, I don't know, whatever you feel. I don't want to you know, make you think you have to feel anything. But in my experience, a lot of my patients have told me I felt like it wouldn't be taken seriously, or I was making it into a bigger deal than it was, or I wasn't as sick as I should be to reach out for help, or I didn't even consider it was really an eating disorder until just now. You know, there can be a lot of different things, or I was embarrassed. So explain that and talk about that. And then, you know, as much as you can, let her know the frequency of it. Like, for for instance, um, as someone who primarily has dealt with eating disorder patients over the years, I'm always wanting to know how often this is happening, how much of your brain space is taken up with thoughts of food and restriction or binging or extra, whatever it is, all the eating disorder things using laxatives. Um, I want to know how much so then we can set some goals and you can work on homework and I can just better understand what a day in your life looks like. And it's kind of like gives us a starting point, right? And that's really about it. Those are the things that I would really want you to include. And if there's other things that you would like to tell her, you know, you can add those into, but again, three to five bullet points, keep them short and sweet and practice saying them ahead of time. I've, I've mentioned this over the years, but I always just think it's a good reminder is we never know how it's going to feel to say something out loud until we do it. Do you know what I mean? Like if I know, uh, for instance, that like I'm having some suicidal thoughts and I've had these thoughts for a while and they just really get to me, but I want to get help for it. And I want to speak up. And I know that that I've, I've watched enough videos online or I've talked to enough people to know that that's what it is I'm struggling with. Okay, I'm just going to tell somebody. And we go to tell, even if it's our therapist or our friend. And we even if the if we, if we can get the words out of our mouth, we can get the words, I've had suicidal thoughts out of our mouth. It's often so scary and overwhelming that A, our mind goes blank. We don't remember what we're going to say. And we like blab on about something and get off topic. Two, we may be shut down, dissociate, have no recollection of how the conversation went. Or three, because it's so jarring to our system, we can get defensive. And no matter what the other person says, we're like, uh, like we almost want to take it back. We're like, forget I said it, right? But I find if we practice saying it out loud to ourselves, whether that's in the car, if that's the only private place you have, or when you go on a walk that's away from anybody, maybe you live in the countryside or in your bathroom, you can look yourself in the mirror and practice saying it. We need to kind of role play it. If we've done that, then when we do it in person with someone, it still is a little bit more stressful, but it's not as jarring to hear those words come out of our mouth. So if we're going to say the words, I think I have an eating disorder and I used to binge eat and now I'm not, I don't want the first time you say it to be in session. It can be, but I find it just be so much more beneficial if we practice it enough that we can get through that without doing one of those things that I mentioned earlier, right? I want you to be present. I want you to be able to have that conversation as uncomfortable as it is and I trust that it'll be a fruitful one. So I know it's scary. I know being honest in general, being honest about where we're at and what we're going through, being like real, sometimes even with ourself is super difficult, but with someone else can seem impossible, but it's so incredibly healing. And I just cannot encourage you enough to utilize therapy for that because that's really what it's there for. And that's what your therapist is there to support you with is to understand what's happening, what you're struggling with and help find ways to to help you work through it. And also, if you're looking for any workbooks or books in general about eating disorders that, you know, maybe you do well, a lot of people like workbooks and worksheets and 
certain, you know, books that they've read, they find super helpful. I have a few that I highly recommend. And uh, you can go to my Amazon store to find them all. And you just go amazon.com forward slash store forward slash Katie Morton, I believe, and the store will come up. Um, But one is called Eating in the Light of the Moon. Cannot recommend it enough. Beautiful book. Love that book. It seems a little woo-woo at first, but trust me, stick with it. It's even healing and helpful for me to read it. And I personally have never had an eating disorder. Um, I've talked about this in the past. I definitely had like an unhealthy issue when my dad was getting really sick. For those of you who don't know, my dad passed away when I was 24, I think. Yeah, it was like September when I was 24, right before I turned 25. Um, And when I was super stressed and worried about him and like I felt like my life was falling apart, like my foundation was crumbling. And we go on these long runs. And whenever, first of all, I hate running. I, everybody hates running. I feel like if anybody tells you they love running, you're like, wow, that sounds insane. Um, but I would do that. And so I think because I had that definite unhealthy coping skill with exercise or unhealthy addiction, you know, you could call it that with running. I, for some reason, just f- feel like I, you know, I, I get the process. I get that. And I, I think there's a part of me that feels like, if I hadn't already been in therapy twice a week, maybe that could have spiraled out of control. I don't know, right? We just don't know. But Eating in the Light of the Moon, super wonderful book. I love it. It's been helpful to me. It's been helpful to many of my patients. And another one, and you guys know I've mentioned this a lot, is the Intuitive Eating Workbook. And it, it's super helpful, but it's something that I would encourage you to work through with your therapist or with a dietitian, just because it's going to be kind of triggering and difficult and push you and challenge you in ways that maybe you didn't know you could be challenged but I love that book and you can get any of the editions. I don't feel, don't feel the need to get the newest and greatest. I think they're all wonderful. I've had a couple of editions over the years and to me, they don't really seem that different. Don't tell the authors I said that, but they all are great and um, beneficial. And then the third one, and a lot of you recommended this is uh, brain over binge, I think it's called. And I forget the author's name, but um, that's another great book too. So, okay. So those are my books. Those are my recommendations. I hope that helps please tell your therapist it's going to be, it's going to be okay. And yes, I definitely would mention any weight loss or gain because I want to make sure we're doing okay. Okay. Let's move on. Question number two. And that says, Hey Katie, I'm actually a very shy slash anxious person, but I always push myself into situations and feel very, oh, into situations that I feel very uncomfortable in like taking part in conversations that I would prefer to avoid or even holding presentations. I always feel the need to be perfectly prepared for those situations. And afterward, I usually think that didn't go too bad. Or I'm even pleased with my performance. But after a few days or weeks, I'm still thinking about the things I've said. I'm running through my words over and over again. Oh, the anxiety, you're so fun. Not. And suddenly I feel like I did a terrible job. I feel so embarrassed. I end up hating myself for even trying. How is it even possible that one moment I'm pleased with my performance and the next I feel embarrassed? I honestly don't want to stop trying because I really hope and believe that it will get better one day. But uh, lately, I think simply pushing myself into that kind of situation isn't going to do that. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. And why is this always happening? And how can I stop these, the, those thoughts? Okay, and there's a comment after this too in the same boat talking about exposure therapy. But let's jump into this first chunk first. Now, I love that you're challenging yourself to do it and you feel good first. But my belief about anxiety is that it's born out of our lack of self-confidence. And so essentially what builds and supports that is our the way that we shit talk ourselves and and 
you know, through our automatic thoughts, get us to believe how terrible, uh, useless, um, whatever we are, right? We all can, I think, agree that most of us have that like shitty self-talk from time to time, if not all the time. And so that's what's actually robbing you of your joy and your like, that didn't go too bad type of feelings is those anxious, ruminating, terrible shit-talking thoughts. Now, we can do two things. When I was reading this question, my my automatic thought, obviously, and pun intended automatic thought, haha, um, is that we have to start tracking and recognizing these anxious thoughts and not allowing them to hang around. Now, obviously, easier said than done. But the things that I find to be the most beneficial is regulating our nervous system, and arguing back with a, a bridge statement. So regulating our nervous system sounds so silly, but I find when my thoughts are racing and running and I can't go to sleep or I I don't know, you know, you're like, I think I'm going to lay down, you know, for bed. And then all of a sudden my brain's like, remember that stupid thing that you said like a year ago at that event? I'm like, let's think about that for a while. And you're like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, thanks anxiety, right? It's not helpful. So I get up and I do the full body shake. I know I've been preaching this because of COVID and our stress response, but I read a lot about that. Also wrote a book coming out in September about trauma, read a lot about regulation and our nervous system and things that we can do. Now, if I'm super tired and getting up to shake just feels like way too much energy, I do this thing where I relax my jaw. I might even rub on the edge, you know, the like where the joints are. I might like rub on that. And I will make sure my tongue is off the top of my mouth, which it's always stuck there and like my teeth are clenched, hence why I have to wear a mouth guard at night because that's, you know, it's my, it's my jam. Um, but I try to relax my jaw and then I put my hand on my belly and a hand on my chest and I try to do belly breathing, which, you know, for some of us with anxiety, if I do too much breathing, sometimes it makes things worse, but sometimes it does help. So those are some of the things that I do um, or I repeat mantras. And sometimes I'll like tickle my arm or I'll ask Sean to rub my back because he's lovely and I'm lucky to have him. Um, but some of my mantras are, life's got my back. It's going to be okay. This isn't forever. This isn't helpful. Or if it, the thoughts are getting stronger and stronger, I'll just do the stop, 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 stop until they stop. And then, like you guys know, for intrusive thoughts, then I pull my brain into a happy memory. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about uh, a tr the the Paris trip that Sean and I took in October right before it felt like the world stopped. And then other times I've, uh, like last night, I forced myself to think about uh, going to Mammoth and the last time that we were up there, which was again, even closer to, it was like the February before the world stopped in 2020. Um, so those are some of the tips. And then when we notice the shit talking happening, when we're like, I'm horrible and I did that terribly and I shouldn't, why did I say that word? I mean, tr I trust me, I've been there. Like I give talks a lot and I used to give more talks at different corporations and business meetings and conferences. Like that used to be a huge thing that I would do. And I still do it, but it's over Zoom, which is 100% different. Um, but I, there's this one talk I gave where I, instead of starting with like, how many of you get like eight hours of sleep at night, which is what I usually do. I was like, how many of you get at least five hours of sleep? It, it's stupid. Anxiety, right? Or anxiety, anxious thoughts. You're like, that's not helpful. And that's stupid. But I will ruminate about why I said five instead of eight. I don't know, three times a month. Awesome, said no one. So instead, I tell myself, because that's a thought that I've had. It's a recurring stupid worry thought that's not helpful and it gets me nowhere and I can't go back in time and change it. It's one of those. I, I acknowledge it. I can do the stop, stop, stop. And I can take myself somewhere else in my mind. 
I can full body shake, or I can argue back and say, actually, it went really well. And I got some compliments about that talk. You might not have this exact scenario, but obviously won't have the exact scenario, but you know what I mean? It might not be so easy to, to argue it, but I'll argue from another point of view where I'm like, no, people actually found that helpful. And, and, you know, your friend Monica that was there said it went really well. And I can talk myself out of it. But if it's something that's like, I'm not good enough, it's one of those deeper beliefs. It's not so specific. It just depends on how your anxiety works. I think sometimes then instead of being able to just like argue back with the facts and use those as, you know, weapons against our anxiety, we may have to instead say something like a bridge statement where it's like, you know, it is possible because I, at at the beginning, I thought it went well. So it is possible that it went better than I think. I'm open to the thought that it could have possibly not as been as bad as I'm, I'm thinking it is now, right? We can use those bridge statements and we can challenge those thoughts and move into a healthier, happier place. And the final thing I want to talk about is sometimes medication is helpful and it has its place in treatment for anxiety for a reason. And so if you find that no matter what you do, you're challenging yourself, you're pushing, you're, cha- you're using bridge statements, you're doing the shakeouts, you're trying to distract and cope and do all of the things that you can. And it still just feels debilitating, or it's just so bothersome. That's where medication can sometimes help. And it doesn't mean you have to be on it forever. And it doesn't mean I'm just, it's another option, right? But I have had patients and I've talked about this before when we feel like we're drowning in the symptoms, like they just don't go away enough. And I can never fully enjoy things. And oh, it's so frustrating. Medication can get our head above water so that we're like, it gives us like our, a little floaty, right? And we can float there and then use the tools that we're talking about more effectively because we're not like just trying to not drown. Um, And so that it has a place too. And so I just want to put those things out there. I think that that could all really help. Um, I do want you to keep trying. I'm glad that you're pushing yourself to do these things. It's, It's like exposure therapy, which rolls into the comment that said, we are in the same boat. I tried out exposure therapy for my social anxiety, a dedicated practice. So, um, so far it brings little result. I can push through, but anxiety still goes uh, through the roof and general mistrust of myself and people just remains. And that's the tricky thing about exposure therapy is that if, because it has to be done properly where our anxiety doesn't go through the roof. And I know that that sounds, you're like, wait, some types of exposure therapy push us to the limit. I believe when it comes to anxiety, what we need to do is we need to build up those resources. So those ways that we calm our system down, I have a whole video about 25 coping skills, if you want some more ideas, but I've mentioned a few already, like the jaw and the shaking out and you challenging the thoughts and those things. But we have to have all those resources. And then we slowly and gradually go up that hierarchy of fear or anxiety, right? So if there are certain things that aren't as anxiety producing, we do those first, or we imagine ourselves doing something that's maybe a little more anxiety producing and we calm ourselves down. And do you know what I mean? We slowly expose ourselves to the thing all the while calming down so that we don't have what this person's experiencing when their anxiety still goes through the roof, which the problem with that and the reason that you're still struggling and not making as much, you're not like seeing as much progress as maybe you would want is that that proves to our brain, hey, 
this is actually scary and anxiety producing. I probably shouldn't do this. And it proves it over and over and over. So then when we get into a situation that seems somewhat similar or familiar to that past experience, our brain's like, oh, I know what to do here. Freak out because this is super anxiety producing and it's never gone well. And so we don't want to do that. Instead, we want to slowly prove to our brain, hey, it's not as threatening as we think it is. Actually, the past two times, it's been okay. I came out okay. I felt okay. I didn't even feel anxious and nothing bad happened. I didn't even do this certain thing that I've always had to do. And I was okay, right? We need to prove that to ourselves. It just takes a little bit of effort. And so to that person, I would encourage you to, you know, build up more resources, maybe go a little bit more slowly. And again, medication has a place in our treatment for a reason, because it can be very helpful. Okay, let's move into question number three. And that is, hello, Katie. Hello, hello says, I'm not sure what to do because I feel like unhealthy ways to cope are the only things that help me at this point. When I'm not self-harming, I use disordered eating habits to cope. Ooh, so familiar. I, you guys, this is very common. I purge, restrict, get really obsessive. And there are lots of things I won't eat and I'll break down when I go over my daily uh, calorie limit. It gets really bad really quickly, but I'm not sure if it would be considered an eating disorder because I'm often able to stop after a while. It's still an eating disorder. I'll wake up one day and can eat whatever I want, as much as I want, as if I realize that what I'm doing is wrong and I want to do better for myself. It has resulted in binging, which makes me gain weight, which then triggers me to go back into obsessive mindset and restrict again. I also have a personality disorder. Maybe there's a connection there, possibly. Do you have any advice when it comes to this? I think um, I appreciate you a lot. Thanks for everything. Of course, of course. And there, um, and then there's a comment that they, someone tacked on that I'll get into at the end because it's not necessarily related to eating disorder stuff, but it's more coping skill related. So first of all, it's very common. It's important, I guess, let's start here. It's important to recognize that all of these behaviors, again, going back to what I said, I think it was the first question I talk about, like there's gambling, there's addiction, like drug alcohol addiction, there's eating disorder behavior, there's, there's self-injury, there's compulsive shopping, Um even compulsive lying I'd throw into that bucket as well. And even some of my patients will do uh, some like over, like uh, compulsive cleaning, but I don't want to get too much into that because that's kind of like specific to a couple of people that I've treated over the years that that was one of their unhealthy coping skills. And I'm not telling you it's bad to keep your home clean, but there is a point where it gets in the way of you being able to do what you need to do every day, right? And so all of these different coping skills that we can have are all unhealthy, but they're coping skills. And if we don't have other ways to cope that, trust me, I know the healthy ones just don't do it like the unhealthy ones, but that's why we need to try. It's like, unfortunately, like five of the good ones for the one unhealthy. I know it's not fair, but that's just what I've found. We have to replace it because if we don't, we're doing what this person is talking about, where it's like I'm switching from one to the other. Because I've talked with many of you over the years and many patients of mine have struggled with this. We're like, okay, we get the eating disorder under control. Hallelujah. Amazing. Then our self-injury urge flares up and we're like, shit. Then we're like, okay, well, I won't, no, I'm doing my impulse logs. I'm not going to do that. Oh, the eating disorder is back. And they just teeter, totter, teeter, totter. Or if throw in addiction, you know, it's like they take turns. Sometimes they're happening all at the same time. It's, It's just because we don't know how else to cope. And so we're using the tools that we have to help ourselves the best way that we can. There's nothing wrong with that, except for the fact that this is harming you and you don't like doing it. And there can be a lot of shame and embarrassment and guilt about those unhealthy behaviors. And so 
that's why we're trading them off and on. And I want to make sure because I feel like I'm getting a little off base here. I want to come back to the question where she asked, like, is that, um, you know, how she toggles in and out of eating disorder behavior and the personality disorder thing. I want to talk a little bit about that really quickly. So for those of you out there who struggle with borderline personality disorder, otherwise known as BPD, and I have videos about this if you want to just look it up so you can learn like what borderline personality disorder is. Um, and what I have videos about splitting in borderline and what that means, lots of things. Um, but those of us with borderline, and I'm sure any of you out there, you can correct me if I'm wrong in those comments, but we struggle so hardcore with impulsive behaviors and actions. We struggle a lot. Therefore, my borderline patients, man, if they don't like, if they're having a hard time, by the time they've come to see me, maybe even for an extra session, they've already bought a bunch of stuff they shouldn't have bought. Like the impulsive spending is crazy. The binge eating, the urge to binge eat is out of control and they feel like they have no, you know, no way to stop it. Even, um, you know, having like what I would consider unsafe or potentially dangerous sexual experiences where they'll like meet somebody and then have sex the first night. And like, I don't even know why I didn't even like them. Right. Um, we can just make impulsive and unhealthy decisions for ourselves because we're not in our wise mind and not to get too much into DBT or dialectical behavior therapy, but it works for borderline patients because when we're in our emotion mind, we're irrational, we're impulsive. We do things that we normally wouldn't want to do. And that can also be followed with some shame and guilt and embarrassment later, which kind of spirals us out. And so we have to take a break, be a little more mindful of when we're moving towards that spiral out moment, consider what it is we want to do and not do, maybe do an impulse log or two about these things, and then work from our wise mind, our, our non-emotionally driven mind. And that can put us in a much healthier, happier place. And so just talking about that so that you can kind of see that connection, that may be why it kind of feels like it swings from one to the other. We can go through these, probably these chunks of time. Like in my experience, my patient's these like swaths of struggle will last for at least a few weeks, if not like a month or two. But if we can get it under control and impulse log it out and push back and fight back, it's exhausting, but we'll get there and those urges will stop. Okay, now let's dig in a little bit to the issues about um, the disordered eating. Now, just because you sometimes wake up and eat whatever you want, does not mean that it's not an eating disorder. And it doesn't mean that you're not aware because you're obviously aware. And I would argue that if anybody out there, if you spend most of your time every day thinking about food in one way or another or eating disorder related behaviors, like uh, even getting the food, planning some meals, planning how we're going to restrict, planning how we're going to exercise, planning... Uh, how we're going to get out of eating XYZ or how we're going to get those laxatives that we need or whatever. If you spend most of your time thinking about that kind of thing or how much you weigh or what you're going to do about it, that's an eating disorder. I can tell you with 100% certainty that those of us who haven't had an eating disorder don't think about food that much. You think about it when you're hungry or if you're planning, I mean, if you're planning a meal for people or you and your, your partner, you know, you'll think about it for a little bit and I should order those things or we should go get those things and then we'll make it. But it is not an all day event. I don't think about food after I've eaten. Like if I've had breakfast, I don't think about, I move right into work. I don't think about it. Then right before I did this, Sean was like, oh, do you want some lunch? And I was like, yeah, I should probably eat some lunch. Okay. 
didn't think about ate it. Now we're done. That's as, as close to explaining what a, you know, non eating disorder brain thinks every day about food. It's really just not that big of a deal. And so I want you to know that even though we can tell ourselves we're not sick enough, also eating disorders do this all the time. They lie and tell us we're not sick enough and this isn't bad enough and we're not doing this often enough. You are. It is an issue. And please, please bring it up with your therapist if you can. Okay, now let me let me look back into this question. Um, yeah, and that's why you're caught in that binge restrict cycle. And I have a video about that. Just get on YouTube and do Katie Morton binge restrict cycle. It'll come up. And I'll explain, it explains a little bit more like exactly what you're talking about. Now, um, and I think my advice overall for this is to, to, to start talking about it with your therapist and start recognizing if you can, like when it comes to DBT, the first pillar that we work through is called mindfulness. And I know mindfulness is like kind of overused and we kind of hate the word and okay, but it's actually helpful to recognize when we feel ourselves moving into or out of like either one of those extremes, right? Am I moving into crazy, obsessive, restrictive type thinking? Or am I moving into fuck it, I'm doing whatever I want, binge thinking? Okay, if we can recognize when we're doing that, then we can enact some of these other coping skills, right? It gives us that space, that time to try things out like an impulse log or other coping skills that are, I have that video 25 coping skills write some of those down and give those a try. That would be my first, you know, homework assignment slash advice. It's just to start noticing when when it's happened, or if you can look back in the history, like the last time it happened, if you can consider how you started to feel and what was happening and maybe what pushed you from one to the other, because oftentimes there's a triggering event or a triggering thought or a triggering memory or something, right? That pushed us into one of those. And I wondered if, if you could be really curious, not judgmental, about it, could we find some patterns? Could we figure out why it's happening, you know, as much as it is and in the way that it is and when it is? I think we could probably find a lot. And then that tells us when we need to do those coping skills and maybe some relationships that aren't healthy for us or whatever, right? So keep me posted on that. I hope that, that helps. And that's, a, I think that's a good place to start without overwhelming you with like everything. Also, again, those books, Eating in the Light of the Moon, Intuitive Eating, Brain Over Binge, all great. Now, the comment on this question was, can I tack on and ask, what is the difference between a coping skill and a distraction? Are coping skills just distractions? Self-harm serves a purpose, but painting my nails or a picture or going for a walk just seems like ways of avoiding that purpose. I'm confused about that. This is a great question. Now, and I wish there was enough to talk about to make this into a full video because I feel like people should know. Maybe I'll do one of those little short videos on YouTube where it's like a minute long or two minutes long because I'm going to bold this so I don't forget you guys. Um, but a coping skill can be a distraction technique. But as I explain in my video, 25 coping skills, there's really two types of coping skills. Okay, so think of coping skills as the umbrella and under that are process-based and distraction-based skills. Now, the process-based ones are more about serving a purpose. And I feel that in everyone's plan to cope with a trigger or an upset, there needs to be at least one process-based, okay? Ideally two, but just depends on how many you're listing and what you're going to try. Process-based are things like journaling, calling a friend and talking about it, maybe collaging, 
Maybe I do an impulse log. Maybe I talk to my therapist or put an email together for to them. Distractions are things like you're talking about painting your nails, going for a walk, cleaning your room. Um, you know, it, it just is not, it distracts us because, so the reason that there are these two types is sometimes we're not in a good headspace to utilize the processing ones, right? I'll be honest. Sometimes if I'm super, having a super shitty day or feeling super anxious, I can't do, I can't journal. Even the thought of doing it is like, ugh, I don't have time. I don't want to do it. It just makes me anxious even thinking about it. You know, we can spin out just thinking about doing that type of thing. So I may want to distract first. It might be helpful for me to go for a quick walk around the block. Then I might just want to zone out and watch a TV show for 45 minutes. Okay, then I'm going to try the process. Then I'm going to see, can I journal this time? Or can I do the impulse log? Or or what can I do, right? And so we can toggle back and forth. But sometimes we need those distraction coping skills because we just feel so emotionally charged and overwhelmed. And it's going to be really hard for us to tap in and do the processing one. Does that make sense? And so that's why... Yes, they're pretty much the same, but they're really both under this umbrella of coping skills. We just have process-based and distraction-based types. Um, and again, you can watch my video about uh, coping skills, just you know, YouTube Katie Morton 25 coping skills. It'll come up and hopefully it will really help You know, if you have any follow-up questions about that. Okay, let's move on to question number four. And this question says, man, lots of eating disorder questions this, this week. It says, Katie, I'm overweight. And I've always struggled with food, eating, and body perception. My therapist, however, confirmed that I am not really suffering from an eating disorder. I don't necessarily agree with that. Society seems to pass the message that everyone can just lose weight and be thin if they just have enough willpower. I know. Why do do people... I mean, society's full of shit anyways. Okay. But I'm finding that starting a diet is full of very difficult feelings. Shame, because I let myself go and get so far fear because it might not work, anxiety because I don't deal well with hunger, and anger because thin people don't know how hard this is. My therapist told me to try and go through this one day at a time, but it still feels overwhelming. How to deal with this? Any advice is appreciated. Okay, so I think your therapist is lying. And if you've always struggled with food, eating, and body perception, my argument to that would be that I think you do have an eating disorder. But uh, and I, I did a bunch of research about the DSM actually for my book that's coming out in September called Traumatized. And when I was doing that research, I was, it was interesting because as and I talk about this in the book, so it's you know spoilers I guess. Um, but as a an early clinician. So honestly, back when I first started this channel, I was just starting seeing patients and I was just out of graduate school. And I used to lean on the DSM so hardcore. And when people tell me that something like, you know, like the symptoms didn't fit, let's say, I would really struggle with like, well, I don't really know where to go from here. Like what we do. And my, one of my first uh, supervisors had told me like, stop like shut the book, stop looking it. It's only a guide and it is so lacking in human experience. And thank you, Ken, my first supervisor, he was so amazing, but he was right. And it was the best advice I'd ever heard. And it took me a while to put it into practice. And you'll notice, I obviously still pull from the DSM when I talk about different diagnoses so that we have that framework, but then I describe it to you. Hopefully you feel in a way that, that, offers human experience, because that's what these diagnostic manuals are missing, is how different every person is. And not everyone's going to fit that mold. And even if you fit that criteria, that doesn't mean that that's actually what's bothering you the most. It could be something else. And 
I could go on an entire tangent, but the DSM is way behind. They never update. They don't update, especially about trauma. There's no complex PTSD. Uh, dissociation doesn't, they don't have it as its own thing. It's like dissociative identity disorder or dissociation as a part of PTSD. It's like self-injurious, um, non-suicidal self-injury is like still not in the DSM. It's like needs more uh, research. And you're like, how about I just know that I've seen this, I've experienced it. People have told me, I think it deserves to be in here. So I'll get back into this question, but I just had to like vent about it because the DSM is helpful, but it's also a piece of shit. And sometimes I think we should just stop using it and instead start talking about the symptoms and how we can assist with those symptoms. Because other than getting insurance coverage and maybe being able to do assessments for schools and things that have like proper protocol with paperwork and all that kind of garbage, other than that, there's no reason for it. Because I know those are big reasons and that's why it's still here. But when it comes to my clinical work, I do not really care about it at all. Um, But I work within it because it's the system we have, even though it's super flawed. Okay, off soapbox, back into the question. Now, I believe that because you've always struggled with food, eating and body perception, that there's an eating disorder there. Which one? I don't know. Could be binge eating disorder, could be um, what we used to call EDNOS, but is when the DSM-5 came out, they changed it to OSFED. So it's like otherwise specified feeding or eating disorder. Um, It could be one of those. I don't know if you purge or anything, but it could be bulimia. So yes, I believe that there's something going on here and I would just have to kind of know more. And I feel like your therapist telling you you're not suffering from eating disorder is really invalidating and potentially harmful. I don't think they did it out, you know, it wasn't malicious, but I think that it's something that they should have been a little bit more careful about saying. And Okay, now let's get into your one day at a time feeling overwhelming and all the issues with trying to lose weight. Now, honestly, my advice is the intuitive eating workbook because I do not believe in good foods, bad foods. I know some people can argue against that and be like, well, you know, maybe I should cut back on my my soda or pop or fried food or whatever. Sure, if it doesn't make you feel good and you don't really like it all the time, maybe you should but that doesn't make me bad for eating it and you good for not. I don't, I do not subscribe, like unsubscribe to this whole rating, ranking better, worse based on what we eat, that, that value that we're placing on food and what we put into our bodies. I, I do not agree with it. I think it has fueled a very unhealthy society with emphasis on thinness, which doesn't always, it's not always correlated with health. Okay. Sure, there are times that it is correlated with health. And if your doctor's telling you, hey, you're pre-diabetic or hey, your blood pressure is high and I, I recommend that you lose a little weight, listen to your physicians. I'm just saying that the belief that this is a direct correlation that, you know, us being heavier means that we're unhealthier or worse than or, you know, have no willpower, blah, blah, whatever lies society tells us that bullshit I just unsubscribe from. And I hope that all of you can slowly allow yourself to unsubscribe as well. Okay, so intuitive eating workbook, very helpful. Also eating in the light of the moon. Again, see, it's just these books are great and I really think the authors did a wonderful job. Love them. But when it comes to diets, see, I do not, the diet mentality I think is the reason that it always fails is because once we tell ourselves I can't have something, well, guess what? All I can fucking think about is that thing and I want it so hardcore that I'm gonna probably binge it because I restricted, I didn't allow myself until, I don't know, hmm, 
10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night. And then I get tired my, and my strength and willpower uh, goes down and I give in and I overeat it because once I've broken that all or nothing black and white diet mentality, I've had a bite of whatever that thing is. I think, well, fuck it. I'm going all in and I'll eat more than I probably would have needed. So here's my main tip. I want you to do, this is the work and it's hard and it sucks, but just stick with me. I want you to check in with yourself before and after you eat. And I want you to check on two scales and we're gonna have to create these scales before we go about it. And they talk about this in the intuitive eating workbook, but I kind of like to make it a little bit more personal for person to person. I just find that to be more successful. So the first list or first scale is from zero to 10. Zero being, and this is your emotional scale. So zero being, I'm super fucking relaxed. I could just fall asleep. This is amazing. I feel good. 10 being like, I'm having a panic attack or I'm feeling overwhelmed or I'm dissociated. It's like the worst. You feel the worst of your version of yourself. And then fill it in little by little. So does that mean that number one is like, I'm awake and I'm aware of things, but I feel pretty good. Number two being like, you know, there's been a couple of little things today that made me feel a little stressed out, but I was able to overcome them and I'm good. Three being... Yeah, there's been quite a few things that were upsetting and I'm able to move through, but there's just a lot of things. And four, you know, we start building and I want you to be as specific as you can. And you might even as you're creating this scale for your emotional level, zero to 10, we call it the emotional fullness level. So that zero to 10, I want you to... um, to get as specific and personal as you can for each of those. And you might and find yourself moving them around like, oh no, I think that's actually more of a five and four would be less than that. Cause I'm only halfway, right? You have to think about that. And I find I have the best success with my patients working from the worst to the, le- the least. I don't know why, but give it a try. Then I want you to create the second scale. So that was the emotional fullness scale. The second scale is physical fullness scale. Now this one, they talk about an intuitive eating workbook and they put it together. I think really great, but Again, putting your own words to it just makes it that much more personable and that much more personal and more able to use it. So 10 is I am so overly full. I feel like if I bend over, I'm going to throw up. Zero being I am so starved. I like want to eat my own arm off, right? So we should start eating when we're at about a four, maybe a five. When we're at a six or a five, we start thinking about what we're going to be eating so that we are prepared so that we don't get down into the threes and the twos. That's when binging happens. We're too hungry, right? And so creating these scales, I find to be very helpful. And then checking in before and after meals to see what your emotion and hunger fullness levels are. Now, eight on the, on the physical fullness scale is like I took one or two too many bites, Seven is ideal. Like I am pleasantly full. I'm satiated. I don't want for anything else, but I did also didn't overeat either. Start noticing these scales. Start recognizing what's happening because you'll start to see these patterns. So let's say I'm checking in before breakfast. Now breakfast, I'm my hungriest because it's breakfast and I've slept and, you know, I always wake up hungry. That's just me. So let's say when I get to eat breakfast, I'm like a four, like Hard, like hard for maybe moving into three. So I check in and let's say my emotion because it's early. I'm like, I'm actually like a two. Like I'm recognizing I have a busy day, but I'm not that overwhelmed yet. Okay. Then after I eat, how do I feel again? How full am I? Oh, for my patients who have eating disorder like behaviors will be like, I, they always want to say that they're like a 10. They're so full. They're so overly full. 
and almost always that 10 or even anything over a seven, if they feel even slightly over full, that emotion scale is all the way to a 10. I used to joke with a few of my patients. I was like, you go from zero to 10. There's nothing in between. You're either starved or you're super full. And so it's getting yourself to a point where you can check in with your body and you can hear it and listen to it when it's hungry. Understand if it's emotional hunger or is it physical hunger? And how can we satiate that? And I know I'm getting like really woo-woo and getting in the weeds on this, but I find that scale. And again, they talk about it in the intuitive eating workbook. I find that scale to be super helpful because instead of thinking I have to diet and I can't have X, Y, Z anymore, instead of doing this all nothing, some foods are good, some foods are bad. Instead, I want you to eat when you're hungry and I want you to stop when you're full. And I want you to notice how you're feeling while you do that. Because the thing about our bodies that is super fucking cool is that if we actually listen I know this is going to get crazy, you guys, but if we actually listen to our bodies and eat when it tells us and stop when it tells us, tells us to, we'll be healthy, happy, fine. Our body's going to request all sorts of different foods. There are times when I really want a hamburger and that's all I can think about. And there are times when I really want a crunchy salad or some fresh broccoli. And there are times when I really want chocolate cake and all those things are okay. Because if I try to eat I don't know, fresh broccoli every day this week, not only is it going to cause digestive issues, but I'm also just going to be so sick of it and I won't want it anymore. And the same goes for hamburgers. I can't eat hamburgers every day, all day. And I can't eat chocolate cake every day, all day. Also, again, digestive issues. And it's, you know, and so as soon as we remove this belief that we have to be all or nothing, in or out, dieting, not dieting, healthy, unhealthy, judgment, good, bad, you do this better than other people, Once we can stop that, then and only then can we actually heal and slowly build up our relationship with food and seeing food as a way to nurture and support our body instead of as a way to punish it. And I know it's hard and I'm not going to pretend that I don't have days where I don't feel bad about myself or think, oh, I should be eating healthier or this should be that. It's so commonplace in our society that it really unfortunately takes extra effort to pull ourselves out of, of those thought, that thought process and to instead start thinking about how food can fuel us and how much better we feel when we're eating regularly, not binging on you know foods that aren't fulfilling and we still don't feel satiated because, uh, spoilers, it was an emotional hunger we were trying to fill, right? As soon as we can just listen to our bodies, give it what it needs, the sooner we'll start feeling better. Now, I know I really got off on a tangent, but I just have a lot to say about that. Um, yeah, grab those books grab that intuitive eating workbook, create that scale and let's get started because I don't want you feeling, um, there's, I don't want you feeling hungry because you said there's anxiety because I don't deal well with hunger. You shouldn't be like, again, we shouldn't be getting down to that three or two. We should be eating something, having snacks, three meals and three snacks every day is, is what we always have done in the eating disorder treatment center. Um, and then the shame, which I believe the shame then fuels that anger. So the shame, because you've let yourself get so far, you know, and then the anger, because then people don't know how hard it is. I feel like those fuel each other. And so in order to get out of that spiral, we're gonna have to change the way that we talk to ourselves and think about food. And I think that starts with at least acknowledging and starting to try to tap in instead of check out from what our body's telling us, because the diet mentality tells us we know better than our bodies. And I'm here to tell you that we don't. And I know it's hard, but that's where to start. Okay. Start there. Um, 
also, I think you definitely have an eating disorder and I think your therapist is wrong. So I'd push back on that too. <laughs> okay. Let's move into question number five. Question number five says, I always, oh, hi, Katie. I have always found it difficult to be sexually intimate with my fiance. I find myself faking orgasms to please him when in actuality, I've never had one with him in the six years that we've been together. I know this is trauma related. I only truly feel comfortable or relaxed enough if I have consumed alcohol. Very common. I get anxious when Valentine's Day, birthdays, or even just going to bed at night due to the expectation of sex. I feel the only way for me to be pleasured is if he is rough and aggressive, similar to the sexual abuse I experienced growing up, which can also be really triggering. Is this normal? Yes. How can I get over the fear of sexual intimacy? Am I crazy for only being able to feel pressured? Um, oh, feel pleasured, sorry, fully if harmed. Am I doing something wrong or is it just me? Please help. And then I have a few comments to um, get into after this. But I love this question because yes, it is so incredibly common. And the reason that this is common, if any of you out there like haven't had experiences with this or haven't heard of this before, when we have been sexually abused at a young age, that's our first sexual experience. And I've talked to many of you, I had the sex series I did years ago, but unfortunately when things aren't monetized, which it was definitely not on YouTube, it gets suppressed and people don't always know, but you can get, um, I think you can just get on YouTube and probably put in Katie Morton's sex series. There's three videos anyway. And one of them, I talk about why this happens. And the reason that this happens is because when we're young and we're abused sexually, that's all we know. And we associate that type of behavior. Like you said, like the, you know, very rough and aggressive behavior, similar to that. Like we associate that with pleasure and sex because that's, that's what we knew in those formative years. Okay. Also know that it is completely okay. If anybody's out there and you were abused, know that it's a bodily response to have an orgasm. It's not because of an emotional response. I know there's so much shame associated with, well, I was being sexually abused, but I orgasm, so I must have been enjoying it. That's not true, okay? Um, that's just shame, you know, twisting your memories and making things worse for you. And I'm, I'm sorry if you're going through that. So there's that kind of correlation, and that's why. It's just because that's all we knew. But then the part of it that, like in, in the healing side of it, right? So my crazy, you know, for only being able to be pleasured fully if harmed, you're not crazy. It's really just because we don't know another way to feel pleasure because when we're abused, if we have trauma, if we're suffering from PTSD, how many of us can even like actually feel our bodies on the rig, right? Can we even like recognize what's going on inside very often? No, most of us can't because connecting with our bodies is overwhelming especially if we've been sexually or physically abused, the connection with our bodies can feel very dangerous because we knew what was happening was wrong and we couldn't stop it and we couldn't do anything about it. And it almost feels like we betrayed our bodies and we just can't really trust. Also, if we, if we did orgasm during the abuse, then it's like our body's like, you know, uh, out to get us and it's ruining things for us. And then we can feel even worse, right? The shame spiral just gets out of control. And so we just disconnect for safety. It's almost like the same way we dissociate, right? If we feel overwhelmed with a trauma response or a trauma memory or, or in a trauma while it's happening, it's too much to process. Our brain pulls that ripcord. Wah! And we often, pre, like prior to even dissociating, we will disconnect. It's like our body and brain, like we pull the ripcord from our body so that we don't have to feel what's, what we're feeling because it's too much. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. But my advice for this person who asked this question is, 
Well, first of all, no, you're not weird. This is very common. But I would really encourage you, if you're not already, to get into therapy, to see a trauma specialist, someone who understands abuse, and really get into the Courage to Heal workbook. Now, I know it's really hard work. I've heard from a lot of you that you've picked it up and you've tried working on it. It's really, really important to work on it with a therapist because it is, you guys, it is fucking hard work, okay? It doesn't mean it won't be worth it and it doesn't mean we can't do it. We just are going to need someone to know where we're at working on that and helping us work through it. And I also would encourage you, if you haven't already, to at least let your fiance in on this a little bit. Let him know what's happening. Tell him how you're feeling and what's going on if you can. Again, we don't have to share all at once. We don't have to just dump it all. We can like onion layer it in, you know, talking about like, well, I think I'm going to start therapy and oh, why? And, you know, well, I just had some stuff in my childhood that has been bothering me and I feel like I should just talk to somebody about it. Oh, okay. You know, we can slowly let someone in, but because sex is such a big part of a relationship, you're going to have to tell him because I want you to be able to enjoy sex on your own terms when you want and be able to get pleasure from it. Okay. And there is a, I think it's like the last chapter, the last, maybe it's the second to last chapter in the Courage Tale workbook. And someone left it in the comments below this question, but it talks directly about this and how to heal. And I talk about it actually in my, my book that's coming out. Um, but we have like, you know, some actions, maybe like holding hands or touching the back that are, that are like, okay to do. And maybe those aren't okay. No judgments that they're not. I'm just you giving you some ideas that but the courage to work talks about like there's like okay physical touch then there's like sometimes okay physical touch and there's like never okay physical touch and working with your partner they have to be patient but anybody worth being with will be patient and work on this with you is like trying that okay physical touch until it becomes super easy then moving into the sometimes a little bit and talking with each other and you know navigating it slowly so that at some point we can move into the like things that aren't okay and do it in a loving, supportive way so that all those things in those three columns turn into things that are okay and safe and, you know, feel good. So yeah, but Courage Shield Workbook and Trauma Therapist, love it. And please let your fiance in on it, okay? Um, and you're not doing anything wrong. It's very common. It's just enjoying sex that's rough because it reminds us of the trauma is just it's just our way. It's like how we learned about sex. And it can also be, and I've talked about this before, when it comes like hypersexuality as a result of, of childhood sexual abuse or any kind of sexual abuse, um, is that we can also become like we can prefer certain types of sex because we feel like I'm taking control now. I'm doing it. It's like a power thing where we're taking the power back from our abuser in our head. And that can, you know, whether we enjoy it or not, that's it's very, very different to each person, but we can become very hypersexualized or want sex in a certain way just as a way to take that back. And maybe that's it for you too. I'm not sure. Now, a comment on this said, what if there's no trauma? And I want to address this because I, not to like just say a simple phrase and act like it answers all the questions, but some people enjoy sex in different ways. Some people like rough sex. There's nothing wrong with that. Some people are into S&M and, you know, they like role play and you do you. I have no judgments around that. As long as it's consenting adults and everybody's safe, you do whatever, you know, whatever is pleasurable for you and enjoyable for you is completely fine. I think there's too much stigma and 
judgment around people's sex lives when it's actually nobody's business except for the people that are having it and doing it. So if you there's no trauma and you just really enjoy rough, aggressive sex, as long as it's not hurting you and in a way that's like, you know, actually dangerous, it's all like pleasure based for you. That's fine. Just make sure, again, it's safe. Um, you know, if they're you're not actually hurting yourself or if, you know, if there is any thing that happens, like you're taking care of any like scratches or something, making sure that there's no infection, like as long as you're taking care of yourself and it's two consenting adults, I'm totally fine with it. And then another comment said, I, um, I find that I have to imagine situations similar to my abuse in order to feel aroused enough for sex, which creates a lot of shame and disgust. Um, and contributes to me avoiding sex with my partner because I don't want to think these thoughts. Is that normal? Yes. And I hope I answered that um, enough in that first chunk. Um, I don't really get flashbacks, but I do find that sometimes I smell or taste things that remind me of the abuse during sex. And as soon as sex is too pleasurable, my body shuts off. Understandable. And all the pleasure suddenly goes away. And then I want to stop. Is this something that can be worked on in therapy? Um, I'm starting IFS this week, but super nervous to talk about it. Now, IFS, I think they're talking about... um, I think it's internal family systems, I think is what it's called, IFS. And it, I think that that will really help actually because family systems work is kind of in some ways when it, when it relates to trauma, it can help us acknowledge the different parts of ourselves. Like we, I've talked about inner child work and its importance in healing from trauma. It can help us identify that childlike part of ourselves and the adult-like part of ourselves and help us make sense of this system um, and how it worked within our family and within ourselves because we have our own system within ourselves and how we navigate. Um, I would definitely bring it up and I think that that will really, really be helped because my hypothesis about this is that sex is still very closely associated with the abuse. We haven't been able to um, to process the trauma. So anything sexual brings us right back to that place. And so if anything reminds you of it, as soon as it gets too pleasurable, your body's like, nope, this is not right. This isn't okay. And we go into, you know, a PTSD like response, which makes sense, right? Because it is the abuse was super frightening. We often, for most of my patients and viewers, you guys have told me that in fight, flight, freeze, you usually go into freeze because you feel like there's nothing you can do and you're, you're too frightened and you, you can't, can't get away, you know, and aren't strong enough to fight in that, that helplessness feels really terrible. And so of course, you know, if you find flashbacks or not even necessarily flashbacks, but just reminding you of it in some fashion, you're like, no, this is bad. Um, But yes, therapy will help. Yes. Bring it up again, going back to what I'd said, I think in question number one or two is like practice ahead of time, what you're going to say, write down those bullet points and the courage till workbook will really, really help. Okay. And I want anybody out there you know, who's suffered any kind of abuse, please know that it it can get better. And there are support groups. There's the, the hope for recovery. And yes, I know somebody told me they're like, I went to it and it was asking for a prayer. If I want, they want, um, I want them to pray for me and I'm not really religious. The groups themselves, they do have some religious groups. It's a religious organization, but the groups are not religious. Like many of them are not. And they tell you if they are. So don't worry. I'm not religious either. Um, and I've done stuff with them. So you can look on their calendar And that will tell you what groups are happening when, and you can sign up for free. So that's pretty awesome. But just know that it it can and will get better. Okay. Let's move into question number six. And that question says, hi, Katie. I've been struggling with hating myself since I could remember, and I'm now an adult and I don't know what to do and how to get better. I've been suffering from depression and anxiety almost all of my life. Could you do a video on how to overcome hating yourself due to childhood trauma? Now, and then someone left a comment says, I was going to ask, how do I stop hating myself? Even though some people seem to love me, I just can't see it. So these are kind of 
very, very closely linked. Now, when it comes to to stop hating yourself, I actually did a video. I think it's just called Stop Hating Yourself or something. But um, I even did one about building self-confidence, which is kind of the same thing. So I'd encourage you to hop over to YouTube and put Katie Morton, Stop Hating Myself or Katie Morton, Build Confidence. Because the thing about childhood trauma, so this person said, due to childhood trauma, the thing about childhood trauma is that it it robs us of our sense of self and sends us into a shame spiral thinking that we something's wrong with or honestly shame, guilt, and embarrassment, like the trio of of horrible self-esteem and just of what I would I was called the trio of, of PTSD is like I must have done something that brought this on. Oh my God, I can't even believe I allowed that to happen to me. So embarrassment, so we went from guilt to embarrassment. And then we go into shame. Something must be wrong with me. And that's why this happened. Or these things keep happening if we've had multiple traumas. And I must be putting some vibe out into the world that makes me look like a good, you know, good prey for that or whatever. Um, and so that is what is causing the the self-hatred is because of that shame, guilt, and embarrassment and the spiral coming out of your trauma. And so honestly, the best advice I have for you is to find a trauma therapist or someone who's trauma-informed and start doing that work. And even watch my video about inner child work because I think that could be really healing as well as like writing letters to your childlike self or even, you know, um, just considering what it was like for you as a child, like what your child brain thought about that scenario and then thinking about it, then applying it as an adult, like, okay, what would you do now? Or imagining your adult self going to save the child like you. I know it sounds really woo woo. And a lot of people are like inner child work. I don't want to do that, but we all have an inner child and they lash out and throw tantrums, whether we want to admit that they do or not, we act in a childlike way. But that tells us something, right? That tells us that that we're upset, that we're hurt, and that we're not listening to them. And the more we don't listen to them, the more they lash out. And I would assume that your inner child is lashing out through this self-hatred because we haven't listened to her in so long and let her know that we love her and we hear her. Like, what is she trying to tell you? What are What is it that we, you know, weren't able to hear back then or, you know, guilt and shame that maybe she carries around? And how can we hear that, cry about that, journal about that? And process through that. And doing that with a therapist is key. And so that's really, obviously, I know I'm not like giving you all these these tools and techniques, but I'm telling you that working with a trauma-informed therapist will be so healing and it's really, really worth it. And if it's sexual trauma that you're referencing, that again, that Courage to Heal workbook, I cannot recommend it enough. You can even go to the amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. It's there. It's yellow. You'll see it. Um, but yeah, that's that's how we work on it. Um, because even just building confidence outwardly is not going to heal that, that hurt you that was wounded when you were younger. And we have to, we have to listen to her and heal her. Okay. And the comment on this said, I was going to ask, how do I stop hating myself? Even though people seem to love me, I just can't see it. Again, I think it's the same type of thing where we, we have to heal whatever, whatever the root is. Is it trauma-based? Is it our anxiety and depression? Maybe we have to look into some medication. Maybe it's back to that video that I had about building self-confidence. Like, have we done anything to, in DBT, we call it building mastery, but can you pick one thing that you want to improve on and put effort behind it and work to get better at that thing? Can we do that so that you start to feel good about yourself and that you're good at that thing? Then can we put, you know, positive out into the world, compliment other people, uh, you know, 
I love one thing that I've been doing because we're not out in public as much because of COVID is getting on Instagram or on TikTok and just leaving nice comments and hearting things. And this is so cute. And oh my God, you're so talented. And that dress is so pretty or whatever. And that, I know it, it's like me being nice to someone else, but it also selfishly makes me feel better. And that's kind of part of that confidence and, and making you feel better. Um, anyways, I, my video, I talk all about that. I think it came out, uh, when was it? Like in December. So you can, you can find those videos and hopefully, hopefully it helps. And I know that it will. And I know it's hard work, but stick with it because you're worth it. Okay. And also it's normal for other people to love us and see us differently than we see ourselves. I wish that we could see ourselves the way other people do, but I haven't figured that out yet. And if I do, I'll let you know. Okay, let's move on to question number seven. And that says, Katie, is it normal to have impulsive suicidal thoughts? Hmm. Sometimes my thoughts will build up over a period of a couple of days. Other times though, usually when I'm already feeling a bit down, anything can send me spiraling. For example, I learned that I can't see my therapist for a few weeks. And my response is to give up completely and contemplate killing myself because it's too overwhelming to try and keep going for a couple more weeks. I made a suicide safety plan, but I don't know if it'll work because often little things just tip me over the edge. I'm really scared because they're not just thoughts that I can push away. I've come very close to killing myself. I also feel very ashamed for reacting this way and sometimes even feel that I'm overreacting or being dramatic, even though I know I have no control over my thoughts in these moments. Okay. It is normal to have impulsive suicidal thoughts, but my question, I guess, is because this, what you're explaining to me sounds a lot like my patients with borderline personality disorder, where they feel very, remember, I talked about this earlier, where we're, we're working from emotion mind, where the smallest thing can just set us off. And then we are all in emotion mind and not at all in wise mind. So we're not actually able to make real decisions. It's almost like I call emotion mind is kind of when like, we're in fight, flight, freeze, we're in our stress response, which if you don't know, it's like there's this limbic system in your brain, which kind of at the core of that is like your amygdala. And what when that is ignited, their prefrontal cortex is completely offline, meaning we aren't able to think things through, um, have organized thought or plan for the future, like make choices working toward like goal oriented thinking, I think is what how they verbalize it. But we're not able to do any of that. All we think is survive, 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 or deal with this, deal with this, deal with this. And that's not always the healthiest way to think, right? Actually, it's like never the healthiest way to think unless we're actually threatened and in a really scary place that we need to get out. And that stress response supposed to be short lived. We're supposed to get to safety. Our, we calm down. Our brain comes back online where we can think more clearly and, you know, crisis averted type thing. But when we have borderline personality disorder, we can have the smallest upsets. But because I've, I've described um, this in the past, and I forget who it is that said that use this term. So I'm stealing someone else's. I did not create this myself. But they called those with borderline personality disorder, emotional burn victims. And there's no better descriptor for this where it's like, what, what to someone else would seem like a small slight to us feels super overwhelming and uncomfortable and painful. Like if you've ever been burned, that area of skin is super sensitive and like, ah, uh, anything touching it is like excruciating and that's how it can feel. And so I'd be curious if you, if this person has borderline personality disorder, that is like my knee jerk reaction. And even if you don't, my, my advice is to work on the dialectical and behavior therapy workbook. I have one that I recommend again, um, it's just in my Amazon store. So that'll be linked in the description. You can click on it and find it. It's green. And I even have Marsha Linehan, who's the 
the woman who created DBT, she herself has borderline personality disorder. And there's a workbook, um, like a book of workbooks of hers that I love that I use kind of in tandem with that workbook itself. And yes, I know the workbook is not hers, but I just really like the McKay workbook better. Don't tell her. Um, but maybe I should try one of hers again and see if there's like an updated version that I like. But anyways, that's what I would really encourage you to dig into. That's what I would um, spend my time and energy and therapy talking about. And as far as a safety plan, if it's not going to work, we're going to have to figure out my, my goal for you would honestly be because small things will tip us over the edge. What's the buildup to that? I want you to be curious about this and be a detective to figure out what it is that's triggering as we kind of move up, right? Until we tip. And then we feel like we're going to be really impulsive and hurt ourselves. So what's the lead up? I know we think, because we're an emotion brain, we think it's just this one little thing. And we went from zero to 60. But that is not how our nervous system works. That is usually not actually, like not the case if we actually think about it. So think back. Maybe if you can, one day, let's go two days, let's maybe go a week back, let's see, what's the buildup? What happened? Are we afraid? Is it the fear of abandonment, which again, is that BPD type thing? I think our therapist is going to leave us. And so we're like, well, fuck it, I'm out. You know, that um, is that the thought process? And how can we slow that down? So once we recognize, okay, that's that buildup, and that's that impulsive thought, how can we slow that down? How can we breathe? I would encourage you. Um, I will, uh, I'll link it in the description. That'll be the easiest thing. But the self-injury, one of my favorite things about like impulse for to deal with impulsive thoughts of any kind is an impulse log. Now, the one that I like is catered to self-injury, but I think we can just, you know, switch that word out for suicidal thoughts. Use this promise me that you'll try the impulse log before you do anything else. I mean, reach out to at least one support, but that can really help too. But again, DBT all the way, baby, it will really help because I, I smell a little borderline like tendencies and that really, it helps so much. I cannot tell you how much it helps and giving ourselves a little space to think will move us out of that emotion mind, even if it's for a second into the wise mind and we can make a better decision for ourselves. Okay. And we don't want to wait until we're in it, right? Because once we're in it, like you said, you have no control over your thoughts in those moments. Yeah, we, we want to do it ahead of time. So your safety plan should be something that we put in place earlier on. But again, we have to kind of start recognizing that. And so being curious, not judgmental about the lead up to those, you know, impulsive times um, will be really, really helpful. Okay, let's move into question number eight. Question number eight says, hi, Katie, how can I learn to make decisions? Oh, decisions, decisions. All my life, I felt like I never belonged anywhere and everything I tried, I failed miserably at. I don't know how to even trust a little that my actions might succeed. So I started avoiding making decisions, which brings me to now. Being an adult who is too scared to try anything and just wants other people to make her decisions. I don't trust myself to know what I need and I'm scared that I never will. And instead of taking action, I freeze. Hmm. Okay. And there was a comment below this as I also struggle a lot with making decisions, which is becoming an issue as I get older, because I'm being forced to make big decisions for myself. I'm constantly thinking about all the possible outcomes of every decision. And then I end up overthinking things and just making a decision out of frustration. How do I make decisions without overthinking? Okay. I have a couple of thoughts about this. Now, the first is that we go back to kind of that 
the video I was talking about before about like how to stop hating yourself and how to build confidence when I talk about like building mastery and being kind to other people and noticing yourself talk. Those are all the tips and tools and things that I, rec I recommend in that video. Um, and there's some other things in there too. But that will help so much because this lack of decision making and this feeling of being frozen and like, oh my God, I don't know what to do comes out of, again, like the person who asked the question, you don't even trust yourself. Like you don't believe in yourself. You don't think you are capable and able to make decisions. So that is a huge part of it. And that is like the building that confidence, building mastery, again, noticing self-talk, being nice to other people. All those things that I mentioned in that video will really, really be helpful. And I think that's where we start here. Okay. So notice how you're, you know, we're trying to build some confidence and notice how we're talking to ourselves about it. Then the second, and you probably didn't see this coming, is exposure therapy or a version of it for this decision-making freeze that we're in. And exposure therapy would be to, we, again, we build up those coping skills or resources to calm us down. And then we imagine ourselves just making decisions or doing the thing that we're worried about. Again, building, working our way through that hierarchy from like something that's not really scary at all to something that like normally causes us just to panic or go into a freeze state and make a decision out of frustration, right? So build that up and work your way through it. And I think as we have those good experiences where, okay, someone came, I know this is sounds silly, but for those of us who can't make decisions, every decision is difficult. But someone comes in the office and they're like, oh, why don't you pick what we're going to have for lunch today? I'm going to order for the group, but do you want Mexican? Do you want pizza? Do you want Chinese food? And you're like, fuck. And you just, you know, you ask other people and they're like, it's your turn to choose. No one's going to help you. I know that people will usually just say what they want, but I'm just saying, let's pretend no one would tell help you. I want you to just pick something, make a decision and stick with it. Um, and we have to try to prove to ourselves that we're capable and we're able and we're slowly exposing ourselves in, to that scary thing that used to keep us, you know, hold us in this frozen state. So there's that. And I, I believe with those two things working in tandem, again, the building the confidence and then the exposure therapy component that we will be able to overcome it because the anxiety, it also, I mean, just throw it out there, the the overthinking or the racing thoughts could be part of an anxiety disorder. We might want to get treatment for that. And that could be medication driven. That could be, you know, some cognitive behavioral therapy. It could be a lot of different things um, when it comes to that. But that could also assist us if we feel like our thoughts race and we just can't get anywhere. Um, but I think that that will really, really help. And yeah, I mean, I feel like I could talk about this a lot, but Sometimes we just have to jump in and start making some decisions and knowing that, you know, in CBT, we call it like playing it out to the end. And sometimes it helps if we, when we're doing this overthinking, if we keep it in these three buckets where we're like, what's the worst case scenario? What's the best case scenario? Like dreamland, Disney movie. And then what's the most likely scenario? And let's play those out. Okay. And then most likely scenario, what decision falls in line with that? I don't know if that always helps to help some of my patients sometimes when they're struggling to figure out like what college they want to go to, or did they want to take this job or that job or, you know, um, get into a relationship or not, or where do you want to live? Like there can be a lot of big, we feel like very large decisions in our life. Um, but also know that it's completely okay to change your mind and pivot at any time. You can make one decision today and then like a couple months down the line, decide that that wasn't what you wanted and that's okay too. Um, and I'll have a video coming out about that soon too. But I hope that helps. A lot of it, I think, is the confidence building and, you know, just paying attention to how we talk to ourselves, you know, is so key because then we can get into that exposure therapy where we expose ourselves to the thing we try and we do it anyways. And we prove to ourselves that we can, in fact, make decisions 
But then, you know, like I said, at the end, the medication could work too, um, as well as that, like playing it out till the end. Okay. Question number nine says, hey, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Says, so for a while now, my therapy sessions have been moved to online. I know. Before this crazy year happened, my therapist would let me know well before if she needed to cancel or reschedule. Now that we moved to online, it seems like for the past few weeks, she's either let me know minutes before, that's so rude, that she needs to cancel or she doesn't show up at all and explains her reasoning later. You got to talk to her. That is not appropriate. That is super unethical. I get emotionally and physically ready for my sessions. Of course, for it to be canceled last minute just puts me in a headspace of anxiety and worry. I find it ruins the rest of my day and that maybe somehow it's my fault. Is there a way to work through this so that I can get the care that I need? And I don't want to switch therapists because I've been with her for so long, but I'm too anxious to talk to her about it. So when she apologizes, I just say that it's fine, but I'm not really sure what to do in this situation. Thanks, Katie. Okay. I know you're too anxious to talk to her about it, but we're going to do the thing that I talked about at the very beginning of this podcast. We're going to write down our bullet points of the things that we need to say. Number one is that you recognize that it's been a stressful year and it's online so that you don't have to go into session. But second bullet point, you preferred it before when she would let you know ahead of time, like well before if she needed to cancel or reschedule. Okay, moving on to the third bullet point, that when it's a late cancel or reschedule or just a no show for you, that it's very upsetting. And the rest of your day is kind of ruined. So then number four bullet point, what do we need from her? So what I would love from you is if when this, when you know you're going to have to reschedule or cancel, can you do it at least 24 hours in advance? You know, and you, I would, I would even push because I tell my patients to at least give me 48 hours in advance because sometimes I have patients who are trying to squeeze into sessions that they're, you know, things are stressful and they need an extra session. I just don't have time in my schedule all the time. That allows me to reach out to them and get them in. And so I require that. But most, most people require at least 24 hours in advance. And that's what you, I would encourage you to say that. You know, most offices, when you schedule something, even when I go get my eyebrows waxed, Naomi requires I give her 24 hours notice if I'm going to cancel or I can get charged for it, right? So that's the respect that we, you know, that you'd give to her and she should give it to you. Now, I know you're going to be nervous to say it. I know you don't want to say it and you're too anxious, but therapy is the place to practice because this kind of, I don't even know what I want to call it, but just like standing up for yourself and not in an aggressive way, just being honest about the ramifications of her late cancels and no-shows are having on your mental health. It's like negatively affecting you, which is the opposite of what therapy should doing. Standing up for yourself in this way will only help you go further in therapy and in other relationships outside of therapy. So please, please, please do it. I promise you, she probably, this has been a really crazy year for everybody. So just acknowledging that again, that was that first bullet point, but she probably just because you're not coming into the office, doesn't think about it in the way that she used to. And we just have to remind her that we would prefer that she does that. You're being totally reasonable. You're not being aggressive. This isn't rude. I would never be upset if you said this to me. I would actually be very apologetic because I'd assume she's like, oh, I didn't, I didn't think about it. Thank you for letting me know. I thought it was fine and I should have been more respectful of your time. What she's doing is actually very unethical and really disrespectful, but you don't want to change. So we're going to work with her. We got to communicate, you guys. We got to communicate. Then there was a comment on this that said, I have a similar problem with my best friend who often cancels when we agree to call to agree on a time to talk or FaceTime. 
I know that she struggles a lot, so I can't help but worry when that happens. But I also feel let down and sometimes angry because I really plan on plan my day around looking forward to talking to her. How can I be responsible for my own feelings about that and not blame her? Same thing, just a different scenario. Come up with the bullet points of what you want to say. Write them out. Practice saying them. And kindly let her know, because I think with this case, your bullet points could be something like, I know that you struggle a lot. I know you've told me sometimes you're having a tough day. And second bullet point, I understand if you have to cancel sometimes. I don't expect you to always, you know, hold true to our set times to FaceTime. But third point, I find myself getting really bummed out when you cancel last minute. Um, I really look forward to talking to you and then I'm let down. So then the fourth bullet point would be like, what are we wanting from her then? What are, what's the request? Because if she often cancels, you know, what, what do you, what would you want her to do instead if she's struggling? Like, is it, I'd like you to at least call me for a brief moment at that time and just tell me you're having a tough time or whatever. Or is it, um, you know, could you let me know ahead of time if possible? Sometimes depending on what the issue is, she might not know until that time, but what's a reasonable expectation again for a friendship? What is it you're okay with and what are you not okay with? We all have to have healthy boundaries in our relationship uh, flaking, I personally am super upset by that too. So I understand. But sometimes I just have to let my friends know. I'm like, hey, when you flake, I don't feel like I'm important to you. And then it causes me to feel like maybe I just don't need to make time for you. And then I get upset because I really miss you. And that's the truth is that I really did want to see you. And I actually just miss you a lot. And I wish that you would prioritize our relationship too. Now, I know that might be a little aggressive for some of you. And depending on my friendship, I don't say that to everybody because everybody's a little different. But I would say, you know, it hurt my feelings. And I really miss talking to you. And I would hope that when we schedule our next one that I can count on you to show up for it. Maybe that's the ask. I don't know. You let me know. But that hopefully will get you started. Okay. Final question. Question number 10. It says, hi, Katie. Thank you for all that you do. Of course. Happy to do it. It says, can you talk about what would cause someone to have unrealistic expectations of themselves? Oh, yes. I can talk about this. I set extreme expectations for myself and I get for myself and get so mad if I'm not doing things fast enough or good enough. If I step back and look at what I'm expecting from myself, I would never expect so much from other people. How can I stop doing this? Okay, my hypothesis about where this is coming from has something to do with your parents or teachers, people who affected you at a young age and kind of built up those expectations. That would be my suspicion. Um, but how do you stop doing this? we have to recognize. So part of it is just, again, back to kind of that mindfulness or recognizing when we're doing things early on so that it's great that you can fact check later because then you're like, I look and like, I would never expect that from other people. That is great. Let's use that. That is a tool. That is a muscle that is well worked for you. I want you to utilize that. So when you find yourself maybe feeling a little bit stressed or anxious, maybe it's every day, we need to check in with our list of to-dos and the expectations around those. And I want you to talk to yourself the way you would talk to someone else. We need to change that conversation, right? We need to recognize when those thoughts in our head are saying, you're so lazy, you're stupid, you're not doing this fast enough. And I mean, because I, I, would, I would suspect this comes from childhood and a parent or a teacher or someone always having crazy expectations or, or just never saying you were good enough, I think getting into therapy to actually again, work on that root issue will be incredibly healing. But in the meantime, just noticing when our self-talk is being unrealistic and super harmful, we're going to have to shut it down, stop, 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 and argue back either with a bridge statement that like, I'm open to the, the belief that this is possibly too much for me right now, or 
I think maybe I'm doing that thing that I told Katie about where I have these unrealistic expectations. Maybe I'm doing that. You think I'm doing that? Okay. Huh. You know, maybe I deserve a little credit for the work that I do. Maybe. I don't know. We could do that or talk to ourselves just like we would talk to someone else. Because like you said, you would never expect so much from other people, but yet you expect it from yourself. And that's very common, by the way. We all do that, right? It's like people are just different. Like we're... <laughs> That's just different. Like when I tell my eating disorder patients, I'm like, you wouldn't expect that from someone else or you wouldn't talk to someone else that way about how they look. And they're like, of course not. They're like, most of my eating disorder patients are like the sweetest, kindest, so non-judgmental to other people type of people, yet to themselves, complete opposite. So we talk about that a lot. But anyways, that's how I would manage it. But again, back to that root and getting into therapy, the, the key is always to go to that route because this expectations and maybe negative self-talk that we're experiencing could just be like a symptom. And I'm making this gesture with my hands. If you're just listening, I'm gesturing up and out almost like a branch or like a tree because I like to think of things like that, that like there's this root, the seed that was planted in our childhood potentially of I'm not good enough. I don't work hard enough. No one's ever going to notice me. And we we cultivated that as a child, unfortunately. And someone in our life watered that seed until it grew by, you know, talking to us poorly, treating us poorly, whatever. And it sprouted into a tree. And that tree started out as a little sprout where we cut it, easily pulled it out, right? That we don't want it. That's not a tree that we want. It's poisonous. But often we don't even recognize and we get so used to that tree and we're like, okay. And then when the person in our life either you know, isn't as active in our life, or maybe they pass away or something, we start watering that tree, we start shit talking to ourselves, and we just keep adding to it. So it grows. And then those symptoms that we're experiencing, the crazy expectations, maybe negative self-talk, maybe lack of self-confidence, maybe back to other questions, like I have difficulty making decisions, or I have eating disorder-like behavior. Those are just branches off of this tree. And we really need to dig into the base of that tree and figure out what the fuck that root is so we can pull it out and kill it because that poison tree has gotten way too big. And I hope that that analogy works for you guys. I just, I, it's always worked for me. Um, but I think that those are kind of the, the approaches that I would take because just because those symptoms are like branches on the tree and they're not the root issue doesn't mean that they're not affecting us and that we shouldn't be working on them in therapy, but simultaneously we should be figuring out where it comes from so we can get rid of or cut off the reason that that tree even exists at all, like whatever seed was planted. Does that make sense? I hope that that helps. Thank you so much for sending in your questions. Thank you for listening this week. I hope that it was helpful. Feel free to leave reviews on Apple Podcasts. I think Spotify allows reviews too. Am I right? Am I wrong? I don't know. But wherever you can leave reviews, please leave them. Please share this with friends and people you think it might be beneficial to. You guys are wonderful. Again, I'm going to be asking for the questions on Sundays instead of Mondays because I'm going to be recording these a little bit earlier in the week just to give Jules a chance to get used to the editing we love Jules. She's been super helpful. Also love her little song that's about to play. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week and I will see you soon. Bye. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you hit a plateau.